What's up out there, crew? It is December, what is it, the 15th. So, uh, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, all that good stuff. Time for another CloverTech podcast. I've got our guest waiting patiently in the wings. Going to bring in Brandon from um, Silencer Central here in just a couple of minutes. Before I get to that, welcome. If you're out there live, remember you can drop questions into the chat or comments. Uh, Keep them pithy, keep them on topic, uh, that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, we'll try to hit those uh, probably a little later on in the podcast. But if they're relevant to the topic at hand, we'll go ahead and, uh, and cover those while we're talking to our guests. If you have those questions, remember, you can do one of two things. You can super chat. If you do that, we appreciate it. But you can also uh, use the at symbol CloverTac, all one word, at symbol CloverTac. And that's going to highlight my name. I'll be able to see your topic or your question. Gotta fix my glasses here. Um, and we'll get those uh, read on air. So, yeah, thanks for joining us live for everybody that does. For those that are in replay, shame on you. You should be here live so you get to participate uh, and ask questions like all the folks in the live chat. But thank you for joining in replay as well. Uh, as always, uh, big thanks and shout out. It scrolls below to those that are Patreon patrons, YouTube channel members, those that do drop their hard earned dollars in a super chat to come in or ask a question. Uh, and also those at shop, clovertack.com slash shop. So we did get, speaking of a super chat, we did get one. Let me bring that one up real quick here if I can find it. And bam, there it is from Lucy. Ricardo says, yay, yay, Lucy in the house. Uh, dropping a, uh, a $5 super chat. So thanks, Lucy. Appreciate it, bro. Uh, and with uh, that out of the way. Yeah, we only bloviated for about three minutes here. Let's bring in Brandon from Silencer Central. How are you, man? Good. How about you, sir? I am doing well. So, um, yeah, run into you guys. And for those that are not aware, there is a, we'll call it a booth interview or a table interview uh, on the channel. Go back and check that out. But uh, ran into uh, your guys, your crew at the Wanamaker Tulsa Arms Show, the largest gun show in the world. How, uh, how's that show? It it seemed like that show was really busy when I was there. That pretty good uh, outlet for you guys. Yeah, that's a good show for us. Definitely. It's the right crowd. Folks are wanting to get in the suppressor game and we do all the paperwork right there on site. So yeah, yeah, it works out really well. Awesome. Now, uh, yeah, let's get started if you will. Uh, Brandon, what, um, what's your role with the company? Uh, and what, uh, tell us a little bit about the history of the company, where you're located, that sort of thing. Yeah, perfect. So I guess officially owner, CEO, founder, um, you know, we started in 2005. So we're 16 years under our belt. We started, uh, we're based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So we started initially just in South Dakota and we would work, uh, really just gun shows. And then as we worked more gun shows, you know, uh, silencers are like handguns. You can only acquire from a dealer that's licensed in the same state where you reside. So um, as we started working shows throughout South Dakota, we would get residents from other states that wanted to buy suppressors from us. So that's why it made sense for us to start going into other states. So we ended up getting pretty much every state around us. And then we just kind of did a bandwidth around us. And we just kept got, kept getting bigger, kept working more events. Um, you know, really the first probably... 12 to 14 years, that's all we did were, were events. Uh, you know, farm shows are really good. Gun shows are really good. Sportsman shows are really good. Um, and then we decided, hey, we should really look at the total market. Like, how can we go to like a, 
you know, an event like SCI or RMEF or NRA or even Sturges, which is based here in South Dakota, and sell to people in all 42 states where uh, the suppressors are legal. So uh, we took that leap of faith and we got licensed in all 42 states where the suppressors are legal. And so now when we work an event, no matter where that person comes from, if they're lawful in their state, we can actually you know, process the paperwork. And I think that one unique thing that we offer is we're able to mail the suppressors to their front door because we are licensed in every state. We do have an FFL in every state and we do have employees in every state. So again, our business model sort of evolved from events only to now, you know, sort of a direct consumer approach, but then we also still do a ton of events. Right. And those, so those states, there's eight, there's eight that they don't allow suppressors at all. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, correct. So basically federal law says they're lawful anywhere in the U.S. And then some states make some laws that are somewhat more restrictive. So you can imagine, I always call it the dark, dark blue states, you know, New York, New Jersey, California, Illinois, Delaware, Rhode Island, uh, Hawaii, uh, Massachusetts. So it's, you know, it's the dark, dark blue states that they're still not lawful at a state level. I think the American Suppressor Association is, you know, leaning on probably Illinois, Massachusetts. At some point, those might switch just because of the industry there. But yeah, there's there's eight states right now where um, you can't you can't legally possess them in the state unless you're a dealer. Ah, gotcha. And with the so with the 42 other states, um, is it uniform as far as the process in those states? Or are there any of those 42 that have extra caveats or things that hoops that need to jump through? Yeah, good question. So um, you know, it's pretty much the same the federal process to buy the suppressor silencer. Um, you know, like just for an example, the state of South Dakota, where we're based, they don't even consider a silencer to be a firearm. So if you look at the state statutes, we had one stolen one time and it was a difficult pressing charges just because they don't even consider a silencer to be a firearm in the state of South Dakota. So uh, most states don't regulate silencers and it just falls underneath the, the state law. Gotcha. Um We've got, uh, yeah, got a good one out there with, uh, we'll get into that here in a minute probably, but uh, uh, Imagine World Peace says, no reason why suppressors shouldn't be legal. Whoever thinks otherwise has seen too many movies. Probably so. We're going to get into how they work a little bit and that sort of thing uh, here in a little bit. We had, um, I believe it was Calaveras up there earlier, uh, was talking about, you know, he lives in California, sadly, uh, but he was saying that, um, where was it at? Let's see if I can find that comment. Oh, yeah, here we go. He was saying that uh, suppressor would be nice. Of course, he lives in California. Can't do it. But said would have to have multiples as I have uh, 22, 25, and, and 30 caliber rifles. We're going to get into that. Before um, we do that, though, I want to mention the poll uh, out there. Make sure that you check that out and vote in that poll. Got 23 votes in there so far. Do you own a suppressor? Oh, a suppressor, if I can get it right. I need to just say silencer. It's easier. But mm -hmm. uh, do you own one? Uh, yes, uh, one, yes, more than one. No, not yet, and no, never will. No, not yet is uh, leading the way with 78% of the votes out there. So vote in that, and we'll check on that uh, a little later on. So let's talk a little bit um, to Calaveras's point there uh, with, uh, I took a look at, was it the Banish? I think it was the Banish. That could be used on multiple calibers, correct? Uh, yes, sir. So, uh, you know, that's definitely our most popular model. Most uh, most shooters will get a 30 cal suppressor. And then, uh, you know, the, the Banish 30 is 100 percent titanium. So it's really lightweight. 
And, you know, in the past, people were hesitant to want to put a 30 cal suppressor on a 223 or, you know, even a 6.5, a smaller caliber. But, you know, with an all titanium and you're not adding as much weight, it's definitely it's definitely attractive. You know, even rimfire because the the Banish 30 comes apart to clean. So you can get that lead out if you use rimfire. So, you know, most people start with the Banish 30 just because their goal is to suppress their bigger rifles and then to have that flexibility where they can suppress all their other center fires and rimfires as well. Right. And with uh, the only drawback that at least I find with using, you know, my my larger calibers, specifically the 30 caliber on a 22, it seems to work almost as good. Yeah, uh, correct. The only drawback I see is the weight. Yeah. <laughs> 22, no, totally. uh, 22 yeah. suppressor, a lot smaller, a lot lighter. Right. Yeah, totally. No, so, you know, like people, I, you know, I still work shows. They still let me, you know work some shows. I worked the RMEF show last weekend. And, um, you know, you tell a lot of people that, Hey, what's, what's, what is the firearm you shoot the most? Because if you get a suppressor specific to that, you're going to be more impressed with the functionality than you thought you were. And then once you're impressed with it, it's easier to open your wallet and think about more. And of course that sounds self-serving, but that's just been my experience for working the booth for 16 years. If a guy comes up and says, I shoot my 17 HMR the most. I love it for coon hunting or whatever it is. I'm like, here's the perfect suppressor for that. Once you use it, you're going to be amazed and you're going to come back and ask me, how do I get more from my other rifles? That's not to say that some people don't like the idea of multi-caliber. They may say, hey, I kind of shoot my you know, center fires, my 6.5, 300, 300 blackout, 308, 300 wind mag, all kind of equally. And then, hey, maybe the, the multi-caliber Banish 30 is the best choice because you kind of get the best bang for your buck. You can use it for, for pretty much everything you have. Uh, into that, we've got X-Adam1 out there uh, on topic here. He says, uh, what suppressor would your guest recommend for a dedicated 300 blackout on an 8-inch AR platform? Sure. So, you know, we were talking about the Banish 30 before. What we find is, as you know, the blackout's a dirty round. So you want to be able to get a suppressor that you can take apart to clean. And uh, the Banish 30 does, uh, you know, it's kind of self-serving where you can take it apart and self-clean it. The other benefit is with that shorter barrel, some people worry about too much blast on that, you know, initial initial baffle. What's great about the Banish 30 is every baffle is the same, so you can rate, rotate the order. So every time you take it apart and clean it, the first baffle is always changing just because of random selection of what order you put them back in. And you're not going to get too much wear on one baffle. Plus, the baffles are you know pretty much guaranteed forever. You do get higher pressures with that 8-inch, so a titanium suppressor like the Banish 30 is 100% titanium, so it's going to be able to handle that stress of the pressure. So, you know, if your goal is quiet, lightweight, be able to take it apart and clean, you're going to have really good luck, especially on that blackout. I mean, we all know originally that was kind of the 300 whisper idea, and that's definitely made to suppress. Right. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm glad you brought up the pressure thing because a lot of folks don't, they don't think about that. They don't think about that in the construction of the, uh, of the suppressor where I'm not going to get into some of the alternative things that we see out there, but yeah. uh, that's one, that's one of the problems when you don't have a, a product built specifically for that task is you could have issues. I've, I've seen some of those things blow off the end of the muzzle of a, of a rifle literally and shoot them 50, 60, 70 yards downrange. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I have too. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, we're fortunate at Silencer Central, just we have a big we have a big volume since we're in all 42 states. So, you know, we're buying titanium, you know, buying contracts two years at a time. So for us, you know, it's harder to machine titanium, but we feel like it's the right thing to do. Customers like the lightweight, they like the durability. 
it's easier to clean and get more aggressive with the cleaning materials you use when you take it apart. So, you know, we're big fans. I mean, in the Dakotas, I'm a big varmint hunter. So it just kind of started out that way with we want them light. We want them quiet. We want to take it apart to clean. And we're finding that m most people are kind of in the same boat. They like it light, quiet, comes apart to clean. Right. Now, uh, Ghost Tactical out there. Uh, since the silencer central cell muzzle brakes that act as an adapter for suppressors, this is a question I asked your guys in the booth because it, it seemed like everything was direct thread. So what options do you guys have uh, in the way of muzzle brakes and, and actually mounting, attaching the suppressor to the firearm? Yeah, good question. So, you know, over the years, all of our tests showed you get better accuracy when it's a direct thread because the actual silencer is shouldering up against the barrel. And the, and the goal really is you have a perfect alignment so you don't get a baffle strike. Because even a baffle strike that you don't realize is happening can mess up your accuracy. And you're always going to get the best accuracy with a, with a bolt action. If you ask any hunter that's shooting long range, that's what they go for. We do have, um, you know, one that's called the Banish 30 Gold, and it does come with a break. Um, I think my only caution is a lot of people sort of have in their head that it's uh, – you know, it's 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 one turn and it clicks on and I think it goes back to the whole movie thing. It looks cool. But, you know, for six or seven turns, then you're going to have the tightest fit. The other thing that people don't always talk about is, uh, you know, this the adapter, the brake is going to be, you know, 150, 120, 100 bucks uh, per gun. So if you have a lot of firearms and you're having to buy a brake for every one of them, that adds up pretty quick. So, you know, just being like, uh, you know, advising people what, what do you feel like you're going to get with this quick detach that you can't get from a direct thread and some people say i want the cool factor and, hey that's fine if you're willing to pay for it typically quick detaches are going to be 200 dollars more per can plus the fee you know the expense of putting the adapter on each you know if people come to the booth and say hey i have a break on there typically i say i would take it off and put a direct thread it's just it's the most cost effective and it's the most accurate and there's less likely of blowing off. I mean, you talked about seeing them go down range. I've seen what I consider like gun people using suppressors that are quick to attach. They were 100% confident they had it on and the quick to attach went down range. So I've seen enough of that and I've seen accuracy issues just for repeatability. Because really, if you think of accuracy, it's just it's a measure of repeatability and you're going to get the best repeatability on a direct threat can. So we've got uh, this is an interesting one out there from uh, from G Webs. Uh, I'll let you hit on this one real quick. He says uh, with current law, which we're going to kind of talk about the process and all that here shortly. Uh, but he says with current law, he says uh, we need to build suppressors to last a long time, so material cost right raises the cost of the can, which is true. He says with different laws, couldn't suppressors become disposable and much cheaper? And then he goes on to say. Uh, uh, or at least the parts can be allowed to be be replaced cheaper. Um, that's an interesting yeah. an interesting yeah. idea for sure. No, good question. So of course, uh, you know, when we go to like SCI or RMEF events where you meet people that have been on safari hunts and they're used to going over to say South Africa or even um, you know other countries to hunt where they don't have the regulations we do on silencers, you do find that typically in countries where you can buy suppressors unregulated, they are typically aluminum. The thought process is that they're going to be disposable. You're going to use it for a year or two and you're just going to throw it away. And then that is the difference to the market in America is, you know, manufacturers. And one thing I didn't really mention is Silencer Central is also a manufacturer. Our goal is to make the process as simple as possible for um, for our customers to get the suppressors. So we have an entire line of suppressors that we make just because we find that once you try to buy through a wholesaler, that really limits what you're able to do as a dealer. 
uh, if you're relying 100% on a manufacturer to sell to a wholesaler and then hope the wholesaler is going to supply the demand you can create, it's just, it's, it's a rocky slope. So, you know, about 12 years ago, we went on the mission of let's create our own brand and let's make sure that we have it made to the standards that we want and what we're hearing from customers every day. And typically that was, you know, the, the titanium that lasts longer. But to the question of, um, you know, disposable worth throwing away, you know, you'll see that we have uh, pretty much every major silencer manufacturer out there is going to have a lifetime warranty. If something goes wrong, they're going to repair it. And I hear people say, well, you know, some of them put the, the markings on a different part of the can in case the can breaks. You know, I don't know of any reputable company that has very many cans that crack where you're going to have to replace the you know, the actual tube. So although it sounds great that, you know, some are not putting the markings on the tube in case the tube needs to be replaced in real life, I, you know, you just don't hear or see that in high quality cans, but you know, the reality is these are guaranteed for life. So, um, you know, it's either pay now or pay later. So if it's disposable and you're making a new one every couple of years or, you know, buy an all titanium one that you can use for a lifetime and you can pass down to your, your children. Right. Uh, yeah, most of the issues I've seen myself with them, uh, it's a baffle or, a, or an end cap, you know, yeah. issue typically. Yeah, and what we do is we have a form, people send it back, we replace it free, send it right back. I mean, we have those, you know, like just bins full of those items and we just, it's a quick, you know, the ATF doesn't make you put it in your books if it doesn't stay, if it doesn't stay in house for 24 hours. So it's kind of our incentive that as soon as we get it, we're throwing it back in the mail to you. Oh, wow. And yeah. because because you guys are set up the way you are in all 42 states, that's a direct to you, direct back to the customer, correct? Yeah, exactly. So it'd be just like any other farm repair. You know, the other thing I did mention is we thread barrels. So we, we actually, you know, we're, our whole goal is like, how do we get rid of the obstacles that the customer either is real or perceived in buying a suppressor? And, you know, one of them is the paperwork. So we've spent tons of time with the ATF since 2005 creating variances that allow our business model to essentially be almost 100% digital which we find makes it easier on the customer. I mean, we still have the, the mailing part that we can do, but uh, you know, customers seem to prefer digital because it's more instant. So really 100% of our processes are digital. But the other part is we also have a CNC machine shop. At, at gun shows, people will be like, you know what, I don't know if my local gunsmith is, is capable or willing or able or even I can trust him to thread the barrel. So you know, we're threading a couple hundred barrels a day. We have a, you know, a CNC lathe, a TL2, um, lathe where I have a machinist who is putting them in the machine and I have a gunsmith taking them apart. So it's basically an assembly line of taking rifles apart. It's about 45 minutes to kind of take it apart and put it back together. It's about 90 seconds to thread it on a CNC lathe. So, um, you know, it just it, it, it reduces the barriers, if you will. But the same concept of they can mail us a firearm as long as it's to us. We're a licensed dealer. We're a manufacturer. We thread the rifle, send it right back to them. Doesn't have to yeah. go through another dealer. As, as somebody that has a couple of Form 1s myself, and for those yeah. that aren't familiar, Form 1s means that you, you built it yourself. Totally yeah. legal. You're able to do that, assuming you go through the, the hoops in the process. Um, oh. I, can, I can attest to how careful you have to be about everything being concentric, everything having to be you know, true to the bore and all of this other stuff. Like you have to be really, really careful with that because and, – and that starts – at the you're absolutely right that starts at the muzzle end of that firearm with the threads and continues oh, yeah. on through the suppressor and if, if you're off any with it with that that you're going to get baffle strikes you're going to you put in all that work for nothing because the first round or first few rounds or whatever it might be and you're going to you're going to blow the uh, end of the suppressor off <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, our experience was like we would get cans back for a warranty repair. And, you know, it may sound like I'm exaggerating, but I think 100% of the time it was the actual, it was poor threading. And the hard part yeah. is, you know, you may not know your suppressor dealer as well as you know your gunsmith. So when your gunsmith threads it, your assumption is that he did it correctly and that everything's perfect. And then the, the, typically the the blame lies on the silencer, you know, manufacturer or dealer that they must have made an error somehow with the product. But what we find is, you know, we get a lot of people that send rifles and just say, hey, can you check? We have rods that we run in there to make sure that it's aligned. And then, of course, on the product side, we have lasers that we shoot through each one to make sure that, um, you know, it's going to meet the QA 100% when it's put in the box and, you know, put on the shelf to be waiting for the customer's approval. Wow. Um, so we are going to cover some of the those hoops that you have to jump through, kind of talk about the new digital forms and other things. So keep those questions coming. I'm watching for those. Um, since we're still kind of talking about the product itself a little bit, uh, Sam out there is saying uh, with a market of different calibers out there, uh, there's so many different caliber suppressors. Uh, what does it say? How many uh, caliber suppressors do you have now? So what type of a range does Silencer Central cover? Yeah, and just, you know, also the you know reminder, I should say, is we're a dealer. We can sell anything. So if someone needs something, they just call us so we can get anything. It's just, you know, when someone orders something, we have to get through a wholesaler. If we don't have it in inventory, it does take longer, and it's kind of out of our hands, which puts us in a tough situation. So... But the question of the banish line specifically, you know, we're going to have a rimfire banish 22. It's going to work on, you know, it's 100% titanium, comes apart to clean. It's stack baffles, which is typically always the quietest in rimfire and handguns and rifle. But the, the banish 22 is going to fit on all your, you know, 22 Hornet, 22 Mag, 5.7, your larger rounds. Um, so we have that rimfire can, 100% titanium. We have a 223 can that, you know, typically you're only going to see it used in uh, maybe some rimfire, but mostly a 223, probably an AR type application. I use it on a 22250 when I shoot prairie dogs. We have a 30 cal, which is sort of the universal multi cal. People are using that on a 300 rum all the way down to, you know, 17 or 22. So anywhere in that center fire rifle category. Uh, we also have the 300, the uh, 30 gold, which I talked about earlier. You know, you can see that for the Rome, the 3378, um, you know, it's 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 a little bit larger diameter, works really well on the hotter calibers. Uh, it's good for the wind mags and it'll go down all the way to to the rim fires. But we have a 45. So that's rated for a 10, a 9, a 40, a 45. So the Banish 45 is for all all of your handguns, you know, sort of a sneak peek for SHOT Show. You know, we'll have a 338 there and a Banish 46 and that 46 will be you know, your straight wall cartridges. We got a lot of guys in states where they can't deer hunt unless they're using yep. that straight wall cartridge. So, you know, we'll have one there that'll work on the, you know, 450 Legend, uh, 450, 458 Bushmaster, and it'll be an all titanium construction as well. And you could use it on a 338. So pretty much every, every gamut we're going to have covered. I mean, we don't have a shotgun suppressor, but we obviously work with manufacturers that have those. We make those available to our customers. So we've got, uh, let's see. Let's cover this one from G Webs. This is a good one. He says, uh, "What can would you like to see?" Uh, I guess he's asking your opinion, but no one makes yet, so that's an interesting one. Boy, yeah, that's a good question. It's funny we were talking about that a little bit this morning. You know, the hard part is I've been doing it for a long time. So, 2005, I felt like the market was really 
really focused on the tactical shooter, which, um, you know, that's great. But I found that me being in the Dakotas, most of my customers or potential customers were the hunters. And um, so there was sort of a different application. You know, tactical was, does it look cool? And is it hearing safe? And hunting was more of, is it lightweight? And is it quiet? So, you know, sometimes there's overlaps there, but, you know, I can't think of any suppressor that's out there that isn't currently being made. I mean, I will tell you that I do have a little bit of chest pain when I read the Biden um, executive order. You know, their goal, the Biden administration's goal is to try to erase what they call the ghost guns. And if you read the fine print, I mean, it's it's probably 100 pages, but every time I read it, I, you know, I have to fine tune. We have a meeting with ATF at SHOT Show set up where we're going to, you know, sort of try to dig into it a little bit, but they're going to want everything serialized as far as parts. And there's a lot of suppressors out there that say, hey, buy this tube and then buy these million parts whenever you need them. And then you can accommodate this can that you bought to use on any firearm that even you don't even own yet. And that all sounds really good in, in sort of concept, but I've had the ATF, you know, knock on our door in the past and say, we don't like that. You can't do that. You know, in the future, we're going to want you to serialize all those parts. Um, you know, it's obviously easy for me as a manufacturer and as a dealer to say, gosh, this is overreach. This is horrible. I can't believe this is happening. But, you know, as a business owner, it's a reality. So how, how do we understand what's going to happen? How do we make sure we're prepared for it? How do we prepare our customers for it? But, um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I can't think of anything that's not out there that I haven't, you know, seen. I think that I just am more worried about some of the things I've seen out there that I like that I've been told I can't do. I mean, they've knocked on our door right. and said, you can do that. And to me, it's like, well, how's that fair? Other people are doing that. Um, they don't really have a good answer, but it seems to me like they're trying to tighten it a little bit where you can't just buy one thing and have a whole briefcase full of parts and sort of make what you want to accommodate things later. So that's something to probably think about, you know, does it make sense to start stocking up on some of those because they could get limited once this Biden administration executive order gets it, you know, fully vetted. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, now you mentioned, you mentioned SHOT Show. Are you guys, are you guys going as an exhibitor or you're just going to network and walk around? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, you know, our business model is more of a direct to consumer. I mean, at the end of the day, I would say that we're a dealer and um, you know, the NSSF is pretty thorough in making sure there's only dealers there. I mean, we all know there's a lot of people who bring friends that aren't dealers, but we kind of feel like it's probably not our market to, you know, if our goal is to, to interact individually with consumers, probably SHOT Show is not the best sort of opportunity for us. But to your question, we are at Industry Day and we do have like, you know, one of the main booths there at Industry Day. Uh, we have a really tight relationship with the people that manage the media day, the industry day there. So right. uh, we're going to have a huge presence at that. We'll have a big, you know, I'll probably have 40 employees there for my team because we roll right into that, which rolls into SCI, the, which is a big show for us uh, for hunting. So, um, yeah, we'll have a huge presence at the show. We'll have a huge presence at the industry day for the media. And but we won't necessarily have like a booth to be an exhibitor, okay. but of course we'll be there networking and, you know, working with different people and trying to see what opportunities maybe are out there that we haven't heard about. Or you know, we're pretty far away from a lot of the civilization. I sometimes say it's good. Sometimes it's bad being in the center of the country in South Dakota. I can right. thank my wife for that, for bringing me here. I'm originally a Southern boy. So <laughs> it's definitely a little bit different. Good pheasant hunting, good varmint hunting, but a little bit different than where I grew up in the South. Yeah, no, I can I can imagine. Uh, so Sam out there, uh, and and I think that's a play. I think that's a proper play. Talking about shot show real quickly, uh, 
with the position that your company's in and the way it's set up. I think, yeah, I think that's a really good play. Look forward to seeing you at industry day. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I love my, my team members that work with me and they're all, I have to sometimes caution them. There's a lot of shiny rocks out there and and we all want to go pick up shiny rocks, but I tell them we got to focus. And to me, you know, shot show is great, but also it's kind of like the Smithsonian, right? If you try to see every exhibit in the Smithsonian, uh, you couldn't do it in a lifetime. So, you know, my point to them is it's it's not just showing up at SHOT Show makes you, everyone knows who you are. And if our goal is to focus on a direct consumer market, let's make sure we're focusing the efforts on direct consumer and we're not trying to, you know, send a mixed message to dealers, which in all actuality probably see us as a competitor. That's that's true. Uh, Sam out there real quick uh, says, uh, so you mentioned the 338. Uh, do you do suppressors for bigger rounds than that? So I guess that would be a 50 probably, yeah, right? Or maybe yeah, a 4 no. or 16. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, good question. And yeah, we sell for everything. Um, you know, we buy from AWC out in Arizona uh, for the 50. is probably our biggest supplier because it'll handle the, the semi-automatic Barrett, which is probably the most common that people want to actually uh, put some, put a suppressor on. So we do sell a lot. Just being out here in the open country, we do sell a lot of the bigger calibers. They often tell us we're their biggest customer for sure in volume on 50 cal. And of course, the the QDL by uh, Barrett on their 50 that's made specifically for their 50, we sell those as well. And um, yeah, I, I'm sort of shocked. I mean, I don't feel like us having more open area than other people, but you know, being licensed originally in South Dakota, and then our you know first few licenses were North Dakota and Montana and Wyoming. We do sell a ton of the 338s. Um, and of course, our Bandage 46 will, is going to work on bigger calibers as well. So you could use it on a 375 H&H and you know, 338. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm going to mention we're at the bottom, pretty much the bottom of the hour here. I'm going to mention uh, the poll. Uh, still got that going on. Do you own a suppressor? Yes, one. Yes, more than one. No, not yet. And no, never will. I was 71% now. No, not yet, which is encouraging, uh, is uh, is leading the way. So make sure if you're out there, you're listening, uh, you uh, you vote on that. So we're gonna move. We're gonna move into. We spent a lot of time on the product suppressors themselves. I think it's really important since we are talking about something that unfortunately is regulated by the NFA. <laughs> that we talk a little bit about the legalities and other things with this. So I want to shift uh, into that before we do, though. Uh, Brandon Ghost out here has a uh, as a great question to close out the products part, and uh, he basically just wants us to uh, wants you to to sell and shield. He says for newbies, what is the greatest asset and reason to get into the suppressor game? Okay, hey, good question, right? That's a softball pitch. So, you know, one thing I don't mention enough is recoil reduction. A lot of guys want to be able to use a bigger caliber and kind of get the feel of it's a smaller. So you're going to get the same recoil reduction you would if you had a, had a break on there. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of people don't think about it as much. Um, just the hearing protection, you know, just being able to – most people hunt. It's a social activity, kids, friends, and the ability to be able to carry on conversation with not having the earmuffs on I think is important for a lot of people. Uh, the hunting aspect, I think, is huge. I, you know, firsthand, that's how I got into it, prairie dog hunting. I used to drive five hours west. I'd take one shot. Every prairie dog went in their hole, and then I had to drive home. Now, set a bench up and shoot all day long because they can hear the bullet passing them, but they don't hear that loud percussion, so they don't know where it came from. 
Uh, so that is so impactful. It enhances hobby. And anytime you can find something that enhances your hobby, that's a total win. So again, I talked about sort of the hearing protection and the hunting. Um, it also, we find it helps your accuracy. And people say, well, how does it help your accuracy? Having that extra weight on the end of the barrel works the same way as, say, a bull barrel would. Uh, you're going to get a more consistent shot. Just having that extra weight, you're not going to get as much jump. Um, so anytime you can enhance accuracy, reduce recoil, and not have to wear earplugs and enhance your hunting experience, most people are like, I'm in, where do I get started? Um, and, and, you know, one thing I did mention, too, about how we make it simple to get, we let you pay while you wait. And guys love that. I mean, they come up to us at the show, they call us online, they buy on our website, and it's sort of an interest-free, hey, how much do you want to put down today and let's just get you started? And as long as you pay it off before we ship it to your front door, everybody's happy. Right. Um Except for now, that's that might be a, a weird issue, and we'll get into that when we talk about the digital forms and them potentially making things a lot quicker. Um, before we jump down that that road, though, uh, one thing I was going to mention on the hunting, because I'm that way too, um, a lot of states have, talking about the legalities, pretty good segue, um, a lot of states, people may not know this, have opened up uh, the use of suppressors for game hunting. Uh, yes. meaning your deer, your elk, your that sort of thing. So uh, keep that in mind. Check with your, obviously, yes, your Parks and Wildlife Department and everything else. But that so is a thing. Yeah, it's 40 out of 42 states. So they're legal in 42 states. So 40 of those 42 allow you to hunt. The only two you can't are Vermont and Connecticut. So my, right. I always... I always kid and say most people don't want to go there and hunt anyway, and that's not a slide to people to live there. But <laughs> right. So if you're out there, if you're from Vermont or Connecticut, get on the ball, folks. Come on, get on the ball. Uh, you're missing. You're missing out. Um, so with that, X Adams got a question. I'm not going to read it, dude. You know I can't put that out there. We're talking to Brandon from Silencer Central. I will say that much. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's move into G Webs has got a good primer, I think, for us here talking about the legalities and the hoops and dealing with the NFA uh, and the ATF. He says, uh, how's it been working with the ATF, FBI, et cetera, through the growth of your countries, of your company? Sorry. Uh, so I think that's an interesting. What's that experience been like over the years? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, just being like 100% candid, our um, ATF is, uh, so I told you we're based in South Dakota. So our regulatory branch, which is over us, is in St. Paul, Minnesota. So when I first got licensed, I called over there and tried to learn more about the NFA laws. And they were honest that at that time, uh, silencers were not lawful in Minnesota. So they weren't really, and it's not a knock on ATF, but they just weren't really a big help for us. So what that did is that really forced me to double down because being an entrepreneur, a businessman, a firearms guy, it's I want to make sure I'm doing everything right just because I don't want to, you know, I'm a pharmacist by trade. So I have, you know, a professional responsibility to my family not to lose that license. So I probably doubled down harder than most dealers, but I hired consultants through the NSSF to bring in here that had worked at ATF to update us and to educate me. And I will tell you, I take every opportunity I can to sit on the front row and take notes anytime that ATF has a meeting. Um, I learned so much from just asking them questions. I know that there's a lot of haters out there for the ATF and I get it, but from my perspective, they regulate me and, and being adversarial with them is, is it's not helpful for what my goal is and my goal to serve our customers. So I have created, I would say a good professional working relationship with them where I ask them tough questions. And then I ask them, how do we move the ball forward? If I can't do it this way, how do I do it this way? So, you know, to the question of how has that evolved, um, 
I think it's evolved well because I ask questions. If I'm not clear, I call ATF here locally in, in South Dakota and say, hey, how do you want me to handle this? We've got this situation. Um, and if I have a situation in Pennsylvania or Tennessee or Texas or wherever I have a license, I call them up locally and just I create as much transparency as possible because I find that the ATF, the way the laws are written is you have to willfully know you were doing something wrong. I mean, they have to catch you doing something wrong that you knew you were doing wrong. So my goal is to figure out from them, what can we do? How do we do it? And I want to make sure you're on board with how we're going to do it. And I will tell you that it has been, um, it's been helpful and painful. So the helpful part is I feel very confident when we move forward in our processes with my employees, our customers, and me personally, I feel very comfortable with what we do because I've had it all examined by the ATF. I don't work with the concept of well, let's wait till they come yell at us and then we'll know to change. You can't build or scale a business model based on that. Um, but the other thing is I've asked them questions. Can I do a certain thing that I see other people doing? And they'll come back with a hard no. And that puts me in a tough situation because I'm seeing my competitors do it. And my competitors probably didn't ask, can we do it? But because I ask and I was told no, now I can't do it. So, but at least I can wake up every morning and, and feel comfortable, but it does, it does feel bad if you feel like you're at a competitive disadvantage. So I would say, you know, the audience is going to listen to this and think that, you know, I have a kiss ass approach and that's not it. I mean, I could send you some letters while I've challenged them. I had my U.S. Senator Thune, who, you know, was highest ranking uh, Republican at the time, send a letter to the head of the ATF and FBI and give them serious pushback. It was a trust related issue before uh, the ATF 41, um, ATF 41F, where the Obama changed the laws. And I, I've really pushed them hard. I think there's a mutual respect there because they know I do not mind spending money if I know they're trying to screw me around. I'll hire every lawyer I can and give them every piece of pushback I can. So there is a mutual respect there. I feel like they trust me because if I say I'm going to do something, we do it and we follow what they ask. But when they saw I was applying for all 42 states, they did ask me to come to D.C. and they want to talk through my business model. Um, I will be honest, I thought it was me and a senior level ATF person. But when I walked in, it was about 40 of them. And wow. as I told you, I go to every time there's a compliance meeting, I try to sit on the front, the very front chair and take notes. And I knew everyone in the room, but I will admit it was very intimidating. And that was the goal. I did not bring legal counsel. I thought, you know what, it's going to be a healthier discussion if we just talk through it. So you know, I spent almost a full day sort of talking through issues with them. Some things I didn't agree with, but, um, you know, the, they're, they're basically what they had over my head is if you want to do this business model in all 42 states, here's how you're going to do it. And, you know, we agreed to it. We made it work. Did it cost us more in some areas? Maybe. Um, but, you know, we feel very comfortable that we're following their rules. And, you know, I get inspected in my 42 locations weekly. I mean, I'm having an inspection on tomorrow. I had one done last week. So they came in here and they were here for three weeks. They inventoried, they inventoried 70,000 silencers here. They went through uh, every box, checked every serial number, checked every piece of paper we've done in the last year that came in or out of here and uh, found very few minimal errors, just more, you know, it was more errors the customers had made when they were filling out the paperwork that my staff didn't catch and have them correct before they leave. So um, my relationship with them has been healthy, but it's also been, um, it's, it, I, it's never been adversarial. It's a, it's a professional relationship acknowledging that they regulate me and they have control over me. They have a monopoly over it. They get to decide the rules. So how do I make sure that we're doing things right? And that my customers, my employees aren't put at risk. So I would say, I feel like we have a very good working relationship, a very professional working relationship. I will tell you that when I meet with ATF, my staff and I always wear a suit. And when I see other people going to meet with 
with ATF, they do not. So I treat them the way I want to be treated, and I find that they've 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 worked the way I they've worked in the way that works the best. They work based on what you give them. If you're adversarial and you hate them, I feel like you get that back. If you show them respect and you're a professional, I feel like you get that back from them, which is what we want. Right. Uh, we've got uh, Calaris out here. He says, not a fan of the ATF as an organization, but don't take it out on the enforcement level. People be active and get the laws changed. And I think uh, I think we could agree on that one. Ghost says, I think it's great to hear that a professional working relationship is there. Not everyone uh, is out to get us. The ATF can be a great resource if you try to ask questions. To that point, yeah. uh, throw in a little personal experience. I hold multiple ATF opinion letters on a on a personal level, an individual level. And Perfect. it's just like, it's just like you say, you hear people that go, Oh, you can't do that. It's against the law and the ATF yeah. will come arrest you. And you're like, yeah. but that doesn't make any sense. And so they have a mechanism where you write them and yep. you ask for an opinion. And I, now that opinion is only good for me. If yeah. I give you that opinion letter, it, it may not, you. it may not hold up, but yeah. uh, for me, I'm good. <laughs> And they put that they, disclaimer in there. They'll say, hey, every right, circumstance is different. Right. This is for you. <laughs> but but I can't get in trouble until they tell me to stop. Now, at any time, they can come in and say, hey, that letter, no, it's not good anymore. Yeah. You need to quit. Uh, and yeah. at that point, I'm in trouble. But, yeah, it's that line of communication and knowing that there there are mechanisms there. Is it a hassle? Is it unconstitutional? Is it, I think, yes, check all of the above, right? Uh, but until we, as Calaveras pointed out, until we can change some of these laws and, and regulations and get rid of them, you got to communicate and try to understand the rules of the game the best you can, I believe. Yes, um, totally. Yes, yes. And the hard part is they're the ones that are in charge of interpreting them. So unless you ask them what they think, you're sort of um, you're flying blindly, which, like I said, you can't scale a business or put your employees or customers at risk. You have to get clarity, even if it's not what you want. Right. Right. Um, and so with that, yeah, let's jump into because there may be people out there. I do want to get in um, to the new digital thing. Um, explain for pe people, if you will, the, the, the newbie, as Ghost Tactical pointed out earlier, uh, out there that may not be familiar with suppressors in the NFA and how all of that works. Um, prior to the digital, how did all of that work uh leading up to that as far as the paperwork, the process and everything that's required? Yeah, good question. So I'll tell you from our world. So in simplest terms, think of a suppressor transfer as almost like a title transfer, just like you're buying a truck. Um, the, the analogy holds all the way through, except with a truck, you get to leave with a lot with it, with a silencer, you don't. So, right. yeah, so think, so think of it's a title transfer. So the feds have uh, Silencer Central as the title holder of the suppressor that you purchased from us. We ask the feds to retitle the ownership of that suppressor from us to your trust. We always provide our customers a free trust unless they already have one. Um, and they'll do a background check to approve it. They'll charge a $200 tax stamp, which was created in 1934, to approve it. And once they approve it, they send the approval back to us. And once it's approved, then it becomes the same as any other uh, firearms transfer. It's done on 4473, and it's not required, but we put a copy of the Form 4 on the back. And then that becomes part of the dealer's records. But essentially, the walls are written in 1934. Uh, what's required when a, when a customer buys a suppressor from us is we have to get a two-by-two picture. It doesn't have to be colored. It doesn't have to be passport. But uh, the way the law is written, it just says two-by-two picture. We acquire that. Most people do a selfie on their phone, upload it to our website, and then we have that. The ATF also requires uh, you have fingerprints. So we send customers 
a little thing of ink and the actual uh, video on how to do it. And then the actual fingerprint cards. It may sound hard, but I never hear any complaints when I'm in the field. People sound like it's pretty easy the way we've made it where you do your own. They mail that back to us. We scan those in. And right now, we mail the paperwork that you sign digitally with us. We mail your picture and we mail the fingerprints to the ATF for them to vet. Now they send it to the FBI to actually do the checks. And then once the background check's done, that's when it comes back to us. So that's the process now. So in our world, the way it works is we route everything in our system digitally. Cause like I said, we're doing 70,000 suppressors a year. So everything's routing in our system digitally. And then the last step is we print it out and we mail it to the NFA branch in West Virginia, actually we mail it to Oregon because the bank cashes the check and then Oregon sends it to West Virginia. But um, the, the change in that process on December 21st, 2021 at 5am central standard time where we live, the ATF is going to transition to e-forms. So that doesn't mean that the current process doesn't work. It just means there's a new avenue that you can go through. So I mentioned our process, everything routes digitally, and then we print it and we mail it to ATF. ATF has said that they touch it. I think their internal studies showed they touched that paperwork 41 times by Whoa. the time it comes back to us approved. So that's the bottleneck. They Whoa. have... Or they have these employees just sort of moving paperwork, if you will, from desk to desk. So they're going to move to an all digital system. And if anyone's done a form one like yourself, you're familiar that that time right now is running about 60 days. And that's an all digital process. Now, the difference with the form one is that's between the ATF and the person making the firearm. So right. us. So a, a dealer uh, uh, form four, which is for the suppressor, think of it as three parties involved, ATF, the dealer and the customer. I still kind of say it's like two and a half people involved because we're managing all the paperwork for the customer and we're uploading it on your behalf. So there is a little bit of a change there between the form one. But, and you know, we've been a part, you know, we did the e-forms back in 2014 and 15. So I lived a year in the e-forms market. So I'm very familiar with it. The appearance of it is exactly the same. The back end is what's changed. Um, we've spent the last eight months as a part of the beta testing. Uh, we took it very seriously. We have our entire staff trained on the new beta, on the new forms, the beta versions. You know, we have uh, programs created that tie in the information that we're already collecting from our customers digitally, and it feeds it into the eForm system. Um, you know, it's going to make everything much more efficient for it to route digitally. It's going to involve the customer more as well, and the customer is going to get uh, updates as to what's going on. Hey, you know, this has been submitted on your behalf. Hey, uh, charge has been done to pay for the tax stamp. Hey, you know, it's currently routing through the process. And then the approval will come back to both the customer and the dealer. So the, the customer is going to have a whole lot more transparency, which, you know, it's, it's great for the customer and it puts a lot more onus on us to make sure that we're submitting them as quickly as possible, that we have inventory to fill. The big difference is that if you don't have the inventory per the ATF, it will not show up in your inventory to be able to to sort of send out, if you will. So we have spent, you know, really the last year knowing this was coming to build our processes, but also to kiss my banker's butt so I could get more money. Cause our goal is to put so many suppressors on the shelf because we know this, this, this doubles or triples the demand for a suppressor. When you tell someone that they can get it in 60 days or 30 days or 90 days, that needle of engagement and interest just goes straight up. Cause like I said, I've worked gun shows for 16 years. So I've looked people right in the eye and told them we got e-forms. They're like, I'm in, how do I start? If it's a quicker turnaround, that's an easier discussion with a wife that I just spent a thousand bucks and I'm going to get it in 60 days. Then I spent a thousand bucks and it's going to take a year to get it. So right. it's going to, it's going to change the demand curve um, exponentially. And I think that, 
you know, even ATF would say, hey, you're smart to have put this business model in place where you're in all 42 states, because when eForms goes through, that's when the demand is going to go out of the roof. And people are talking about laws changing. Laws change when voters change. So the more people that buy suppressors who are voters, they're the ones that your congressmen and your U.S. senators listen to. They listen to voters. Right now, they's probably, I wouldn't necessarily ask mine because I think mine are biased because I have good communication with my federally elected officials. But most would probably see this as a right-wing niche that's for firearms nuts. So it's not on their radar. Although, although they may be in a red state and a red person, it's just not a big radar screen for them to stick their neck out on. But, you know, there's only 2 million suppressors in the entire marketplace since they started being registered in 1934. So if that number goes to 10, 15 million and you have more of a user access across the country, you're going to have people speaking about these with their legislators. You're going to see laws change. So it sounds very self-serving for me, but I think the more we sell and the more we educate people and the more people that are exposed to them, the better it's going to, the easier it's going to be to change the laws. I mean, that's just my experience. I had a hell of a time changing firearms laws in South Dakota, which I consider to be one of the, you know, Governor Christine Ohm, one of the reddest states in America. But it took seven years for me to change our concealed carry laws here that made it where we didn't have to have a background check when you pick up the firearm. Um, just to enhance the gun show experience. So it's all about education. And the best educator is the voter. And the best voter is the person that owns the suppressor. So with the with the new e-file, uh, obviously you have to be, you know, you have to have an account over there, a login. Uh, David's got a great one. He says, do we need uh, a new login for those of us that are currently e-form registered? Do you know the answer to that? Well, good question. So if he's saying e-form register and he means from a form one, then he's fine. But if he means like as a dealer, no, they'll transfer the dealer, they'll transfer everything over. So um, and to your question about the pen. So the way it'll work is, um, you know, they're going to ask you a few questions that are in your um, background, thinking more of like financial, like a background check to, you know, sort of a credit check type question. You know, Brandon, which of the following streets did you used to live on? What car did you used to drive? What was your monthly payment for X? And once they verify your identity, they'll give you a PIN number. And that will be the PIN number used so the ATF will know that when the paperwork is submitted on your behalf, that it's actually from you. So that's sort of the identity check for the ATF to ensure that's in place. Wow, that's, uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, we had, oh, good question from Calaveras out here. Uh, says, uh, how secure are the electronic databases in comparison to the hard copy? And uh, this is part and this is part of a searchable database by authorized persons. So have they have you heard anything about the security, the privacy and everything of the system? So, you know, it, it, as horrible as it sounds, the whole NFA world basically is it's it's a gun registry. I mean, it's it's horrible, but it is what it is. Um, that 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 was the problem why eForms crashed in 2014 and 15. It essentially was in an old database. So when you try to take a new web based application and try to talk to an old database, that's why it kept crashing. There just wasn't enough efficiency in that communication back and forth. So what they've done is, you know, you've probably seen um, where the government has done contracts with AWS, which is Amazon and some of the other loud, larger cloud based companies like Microsoft. They've essentially moved that database to NFRTR, which is where they keep all the machine guns and SBRs and silencers in that database. They move that to the cloud. So that's what's going to make the eForms work more efficiently because it can talk. But as far as a searchable database, you know, 
I, you know, you got to hope it's secure, right? Um, it, it's the feds that control it. You know, the yeah. feds control it. So it's kind of out of our hands. I mean, anything we're entering and selecting on the website is just interface. It's basically, it goes back to the title transfer. We're saying, hey, this serial number is ours. We want you to change the ownership from us to this trust. Here's the customer, do the background check on them. Here's the $200 credit card charge, you know, go make it happen. So it's happening in the background in their databases. So, um, yeah, we got to hope that they're doing the right thing there. I've not heard any potential security issues, but I do know the entire Department of Justice is on the same cloud. So that would be your attorney general. That would be really that whole government area in the federal government. So it's a bit my sister's a federal attorney in Dallas. So, you know, same kind of system. All that is going to be the same that ATF's on, FBI's on, attorney general's on. Wow. Um you know, one thing that confused me talking about the previous system versus the new digital that's going in is a lot of folks have seen these kiosks that are out there. Sure. And that, that process seems digital, but am I correct in saying that it's actually wasn't really digital? I mean, maybe it was digital on the front end, but not really on the back end. Is that sort of how that was working before? You know, I think so. Obviously, I don't know as much about the kiosk, so I should throw that disclaimer out there. But okay. my, under, my understanding is they do help with the acquisition of the fingerprints. Right. Um, Data collection, basically. Yes. Yes. So, you know, it's sort of like I bought it online. Now I got to get my fingerprints done so I can go into an actual location and do the kiosk. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about opinion later, letters from ATF and ATF has told me personally that um, Transactions on the eForm system can only happen between the transfer E and the transfer or, which means dealer and customer. And a kiosk, I think in their mind, is a middleman. And I yep. don't and I think there's some gray area there. You probably remember some form ones going sideways and some discussion about form ones. And you know, ATF I think had a real problem with a middleman facilitating that process. I think that from a security and a privacy standpoint, in their mind, a transfer should happen between a dealer and the end user and, and not a middleman involved. So I don't know where they've progressed with that. But, uh -huh. you know, in the past, when I've asked those type of questions, I have gotten, you know, sort of guidance that, that, that the system wasn't made for that. It wasn't made to accommodate a middleman. It was made to accommodate a dealer and the end user. Right. Um do you think that uh, we had a question up here earlier? I don't know that I'm going to be able to find it. And I think it might have been G-Webs that was asking, but seeing how they're they're moving into this realm of, you know, well, look at look at form ones, you know, currently uh, e-file form ones, and I mean, could we get our suppressors back on a form four in? 60 days and even 90 days would be would be amazing compared to the wait times once those wait times get smaller and smaller and smaller do you see more potentially more push to get suppressors off the nfa altogether at, at some point once that time has come down so drastically uh good question i mean i think it goes back to what i was saying earlier that the more people that you have them and the more they're out in the marketplace you know, I know that this this sounds cliche-ish, but I think that, you know, the ATF looks at public safety. So if they don't see, you know, some of the papers that were leaked when Trump first got into office, it was obvious the ATF was was looking at that whole hearing protection idea because they don't see silencers, suppressors as a public safety issue. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know that, you know, being able to do transfers quicker will change anything. I mean, when I first started doing this in 2005, when you did a trust, there was no background check. It was a two-week turnaround. Right. Um, 
I mean, some other insights on the e-forms that I think your audience might find interesting. I did see load balancing in 2014 and 15. So when you mailed one in, it would take two weeks uh, or a month and it, you had the same weight digitally. So I think some people think, well, you know, fast forward six months from now, you could have the same runway. You could have a situation where we would mail it in and it takes, you know, 60 days and then you could do one digitally and it takes 60 days. That's the way it worked before. It's sort of load balanced. The other interesting piece of information is ATF at least shared verbally while we were doing the beta testing that their goal is to staff to a 90 day turnaround. So if the if the time it takes to get approved on a suppressor digitally creeps up to say 100 days, they'll rebalance their staffing needs to accommodate the 90 days. So that was exciting to hear from a, a process standpoint that the ATF has sort of said, hey, our goal to be to keep it at 90 days. If we have to hire 10 more people or 20 or 30 or 100, we'll find a way to do it. I mean, the other part of the equation is, you know, that $200 that you pay for that transfer, some people call it tax stamp, transfer tax. Um, right. you know, that money goes straight into the treasury. That doesn't go to ATF. So right. there's no... There's no like incentive for ATF to process more. You know, ATF actually has to pay FBI to do a background check. That's why for a while you would see that, like, let's say you had three silencers waiting. You bought one in January, February, March, and then they all came back approved at the same time. That was ATF saving money because they would send that packet to FBI and say, do the background check on this uh, transfer for all three of these. And they would push them all three at the same time. And it's because they have to pay the FBI to do the background check. So um, that's sort of the money behind it. There's no real incentive. I mean, even hearing speeches from like higher level executives at ATF, they even positioned to Congress, hey, what if we could get a year's worth of the revenue off the tax stamps just to help us build out our infrastructure? And after a year, you get it back. And, you know, of course, that went nowhere. But, you know, it's sort of interesting to you learn a lot about the, you know, sort of the mechanics behind the scenes and what they've tried. I mean, even Obama during his administration, he said $200 tax was created in 1934. We need to look and see if there's a way we could apply inflation to this. Are you sure the laws are written firm enough where we can't? So it's interesting to hear all the, you know, and I think the statutes like, you know, when you buy a firearm, if you have a background check and, it, and you know, the, the, the FBI can't determine whether you can or cannot own it, you know, in most states in five days, you can go pick it up. You know, a suppressor is, is not really that way. There's no statutory regulation that says it has to be proved in a certain period of time. So there has been fear in the past, like, oh, what if, you know, what if Clinton got in office and said, hey, we're going to defund the NFA. We're not going to process them because there's no federal statute requiring we check them. That's the problem they have with NFA now is FBI has no statutory requirement to do background checks on NFA like they do for handguns and long guns through the NICS check. Because that, the statutory, they're required to provide support for that. Whereas NFA, it, do, it doesn't have that in the statutes. So, uh, yeah, we're coming into the uh, home stretch here, looks like, of our hour. I'm going to end the poll here. Let's end the poll, and it'll show up here in a minute. That uh, poll question was, do you own a suppressor? And it was uh, yes, one, yes, more than one, no, not yet, and no, never. Uh, and no, not yet ends it out at uh, 70%. So that's good to see people are at least looking into those options. Uh, yes, more than one at 14. No, never will at 14, which is really interesting. And at 0%, yes, one. So uh, I guess folks that do own them own more than one, which is awesome. I'll raise my hand because I do as well. Uh, before we get out of here, Brandon, we've covered a lot of stuff. Uh, and... 
obviously people can jump over to silencer central and, and check out everything you guys do and learn a lot more but is there anything we haven't talked about that you think needs to needs to be talked about you know, that's a good question. I mean, I feel like just being honest, most people don't know Silencer Central because Silencer Central started in South Dakota, which we all know is not a very highly populous state. And then we grew based on working events. Uh, we started out as South Dakota Silencer, then Dakota Silencer, now Silencer Central for about two years. So although it's sort of a new name to people, you know, we'd ask people to check us out, give us a call. Um, you know, Silencer Central has a full call center I'm looking out here on, and those guys are busy all day long fielding calls, fielding questions. I would recommend just give them a call. Talk to the, talk to our folks about what we have available, how, how easy we make it, how quick we can get it to you. So, again, I guess it's just a shout out for, you know, there's a lot of other names and brands out there, and we work really nice with them. Our goal is to grow the pie. The more people that own them, the better. But I would just say, hey, if you're thinking about getting one and, and don't know where to go or you have a friend referring you somewhere else, check out all the options and, you know, check out Silencer Central and see what you think. I, I think what you're going to find is we're very consumer focused, which I don't necessarily see in any other dealers or manufacturers. We're a single point of contact. In most cases, we're your, we're your manufacturer, we're your wholesaler and we're your dealer. That's why we let you pay while you wait with no interest. And, um, you know, we kind of manage the entire process for you because we're very customer uh, end user uh, centric. That's our focus. So, you know, I would just recommend give us a call and see what you think. Now, uh, obviously, you said, uh, you know, plans uh, for SHOT Show. So hopefully I, I bump into you there. That would be neat. Uh, sure. Moving forward with the Tulsa show, because that is yeah. a show that myself and a lot of other ones work as media uh, twice a year, as long as they're having yeah. it. Yeah, uh, totally. are you are all going to continue to make that Tulsa show as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah, we probably, you know, I just hired a new events team. I mean, it was it was a great timing because the market's kind of down for events generally. And us being a stronger Second Amendment, Second Amendment, you know, sort of the conservative group. Uh, I'm finding our events are going off just as good as they were, you know, pre-COVID. So, you know, we're probably working 250 to 300 shows a year. So that's definitely on the list of how do we get in front of folks that want to make their uh you know, firearms quiet and sort of enhance their hunt. Right. So, uh, yeah, again, talking to uh, Brandon here, Silencer Central. So go check that out. Uh, thanks to those that, that voted in the poll. Thanks to those that listened this long in replay. You're amazing. Uh, Brandon, you're welcome anytime. I enjoyed this conversation for sure. And uh, uh, hopefully we can have you back. Thanks for the conversation. Yes, sir. Do you think it was helpful? I, I believe so. I believe Good. so. Yeah, uh, had a lot of had cool. a lot of interaction with the live chat, a lot of questions, a lot of conversation, and uh, that's usually the sign that uh, that you're doing a good job explaining things. So good. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's a big data dump, but I thought you know you asked the right questions, so perfect. It it, re it really is, and again, thanks for joining, and uh, hopefully we'll see you at uh, Shot Show. That sounds good. Thank you, sir. Uh, for for everybody else out there, again, thanks for watching live. Thanks for watching in replay, listening in replay, all that good stuff. And until next time, don't forget to chain fire freedom.